All right, it's great to see you all uh, this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are watching online. I've missed you over the past couple of weeks. Heather and I, we took a couple of weeks off to rest and refresh. We joined uh, uh, another couple from our church and we bummed around uh, the country of Croatia. It's an awesome place. If you've never been there, you should see it sometime. Uh, Because we were so close, we took a quick uh, 24-hour jaunt uh, to the uh, city of Venice. And in that kind of hurried trip, Heather and I decided we were going to go visit uh, this palace. And as we walked through this palace, it ended up being room after gigantic room of the most impressive paintings I've ever seen. It was overwhelming. I mean, there were times as we go from one room to the next, I just have to sit down. I just had to sit down so I could try to see it and and process it and really drink it in. While we were there, I just had hours, but I think it would probably take years to really see all the paintings in this this palace and to, to appreciate them and to really be able to drink them in. Right now, our church is in a series called Masterpiece. It's inspired by something the Apostle Paul had to say about the Christian life. He wrote this down in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And it's totally appropriate to translate this for we are God's masterpiece. He is the master artist. And if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus by faith, then your life and my life get to be living works of art. And with that in view, this has been our drumbeat. This will be our continuous anthem throughout this series. We are good works of art created to do the art of good works. And each week as we gather together throughout this series, we're going to look at a different aspect of that. What kind of art should we be? And today is this. We're talking about the art of gentleness. When we talk about gentleness, this is not an attribute of gender. Gentleness is an attribute of God himself, and we are made in his image to reflect what he is like. So this is for all of us. But whenever it comes to a subject matter, a sermon like this on gentleness, I find myself thinking about the way I wish reality was, the way I wish reality was different. I've got kind of my fantasy versions of reality. You probably do too. In my fantasy version of reality, all vegetables taste like nacho cheese Doritos, But there's something else that I wish was true. I wish it was true. It's not. But I wish that God would give us two lifetimes. I wish he'd give us two. Because I'm 45 years old and I feel like just now I'm starting to scratch the surface and really get to a place where I'm starting to understand a gospel perspective on gentleness. And I wish that I just had another lifetime that could kind of live out what I'm learning. Does anybody ever feel that way? Well, we can't do that. But what we can do is do like I had to do when I was walking through the palace. We can slow down, and we can sit down, and we can watch the work of the master artist, and we can give ourselves a little time just to drink it in. And so today, we're going to slow down. We're going to sit down. We're going to behold together the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. And then after we've done that, we all have an opportunity to respond with our next step of faith and trust and devotion to him, really embracing what it means to be good works of art, living out the art of good works. And we're going to do that by looking at this passage together. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. If you have a Bible, would you open it? If you don't have one, you can use your phone. You can grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you. 
We're going to look at John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. If you're just kind of getting familiar with how the Bible is laid out, the first half, which is the bigger half, um, is the Old Testament. That's everything before Jesus. The New Testament starts with Jesus. The first book is Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and then John. And John was perhaps Jesus' closest friend. He was eyewitness to major moments in Jesus' life, and this is a biography he wrote about the life and teaching of Jesus. And if you are there, if you're looking at John chapter 8 right now, you might see kind of a content warning at the beginning of John chapter 8 that looks like this. Why is that there? It's essentially telling us, I don't know if you know this, but there are basically thousands of manuscripts and copies and and fragments of, of manuscripts, very old ancient manuscripts that we have that we're able to reconstruct the New Testament. And in the oldest manuscripts we have and the best manuscripts we have, the verses that we're going to read together are not there. And really, uh, the verdict seems to be in, the historical evidence seems seems to suggest that John did not originally write this in his biography of Jesus's life. And for some people, that feels incredibly disruptive, like we are messing with the Bible. I don't think we should feel that way. Really, the the best scholars, the the most informed scholars, the most trusted scholars tell us this, um, that while the facts of history seem to indicate that this wasn't originally included, what we're about to read has all the hallmarks of being a real historical event that happened in the life of Jesus. It's very likely communicated orally from the beginning, probably by apostles, and so it it was eventually written down and included. And so let's read it together with confidence. Beginning in verse 2, at dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her, they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write in the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down on the ground, began to write. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there, and Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What we just read, I believe, is probably the most brilliant, the most cunning trap ever attempted against Jesus. But it's not just a cunning trap, is it? It's cringy. It's gross. These, this handful of religious leaders and religious teachers, they've caught a woman, not just the evidence suggests, she was caught in the act, which means she was probably set up. And for her to be caught in the act, and for her to be set up, that means at least some of these guys, they were hiding, they were watching, And they were waiting to apprehend her so they could come and exploit her for their purposes. There's nothing about this that isn't rotten and that isn't abusive. Not to mention, how many does it take to tango? It takes two to tango. Where's he? He's not there. 
Now this goes to show it's nothing new. It's nothing new. This has been going on for a long, long time. That when it comes to, to, to sexual activity, when it comes to sexual behavior, oftentimes, many times, women are shamed and guys are ignored for the exact same behavior. It's never that way with Jesus. But it is that way sometimes with people. And it's cringy. But this trap is also cunning. It's also brilliant because these guys were technically correct. There is the Mosaic law. It was a law from God given to Moses for Moses to teach the people. It was designed to, to teach the people how to live as God's representatives for everyone else so they could be drawn to faith in God. And this Mosaic law came with benefits for keeping God's law. It came with consequences and curses for breaking God's law. And some of the violations of God's law came with the death penalty. Adultery was one of those things. And it was supposed to be equally applied to both the man and to the woman. And this is a point where we probably just need to pause and be honest with ourselves. That kind of law is unsettling, isn't it? It's heavy. And I can understand why someone might say that does not feel gentle. Or we might want to ask, who can thrive? Who can successfully live under such a heavy law like that? And the answer to the question is, no one. And that's kind of the point. And the Jewish leaders understood this from the very beginning. From the moment that the Mosaic law was handed down, Jewish leaders began to issue commentaries and very strict guidelines on how this law was to be applied. And we know what that was because it was written down in something called Mishnah. I want to give you some insights into Mishnah. One Mishnah says, uh, if a court executed more than one person every seven years, it was a destructive court. And some scholars say that's actually the wrong reading. It's supposed to be if, one, if a court executed more than one person every 70 years, it's a destructive court. And any time there was a case involving um, the death penalty, it was overseen by 23 judges. And all 23 judges had to be in 100% agreement with each other. And if they weren't, the accused person was acquitted. But the Mishnah also said if the judges agreed that the person was guilty, but they came to their verdict too quickly the accused person was acquitted. It also said that all the witnesses had to agree on every detail, the tiniest little minute details. And if they disagreed on the tiniest little detail, even if it didn't have anything to do with the offense, the accused person was acquitted. It also said there had to be two people who saw what happened. But the two people couldn't just see what happened. They had to be there before it happened. And they also had to warn the person that what they were about to do came with the death penalty. And if that didn't happen, the accused person was acquitted. So what's the point? These people took the Mosaic law, they took God's law incredibly seriously, but they set up applications of it that made it virtually impossible for anyone to ever be executed because they understood what the law was trying to communicate, is that God is holy and every single one of us falls short of that, woefully short, and that our moral brokenness is deeper and more pervasive than we know how to totally understand, and our only hope is for there to be a savior, for there to be a Messiah to come and fix this condition that we're all stuck in. And from that vantage point, we can see that God's law is not harsh. It does communicate hard truth, but it is good. And it actually points to a purpose that is stunningly gentle. The Apostle Paul, an expert, an expert on the law, said this, the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. What he was saying is the law was a kind of caretaker, a tutor, almost like an advocate, 
saying to all of humanity, trust in Jesus instead of your own moral performance. And so the law of God, though heavy, should do two things. Number one, it exposes for us the reality of our own moral brokenness. And number two, it should inspire awe. It should inspire awe for how Jesus fulfilled it and carried the whole thing for us. And some people might say, Rick, okay, 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 I get that. So that's good. But isn't God's attitude and policies and commands for sexuality, isn't it just too strict? Shouldn't people be free enough to pursue sexuality in the way that they believe is best for them? And on a level, I can understand why people are drawn to that way of thinking. I get it. But if we're going to be grown-ups, and we think honestly about that for just two minutes, won't we see that that way of thinking is empty and it actually leads to devastating harm for people? Regardless of what your background is, what you believe about God, what you don't believe about God, wherever we're coming from, isn't it true? Isn't it true that there are moral boundaries for sexuality that none of us picked? Isn't it true that there are moral boundaries around sexuality that we don't get to choose? Now, what happens when people live however they want sexually? Isn't it true that too many times, too many people end up broken, hurt, and abused? When people live however they want sexually? Doesn't the Me Too movement, doesn't that show us that? What about all the sexual scandals and abuse cases in government and schools? In Hollywood, and churches, and religious institutions, don't they show us that? I mean, are those things really wrong, or are we just pretending they're wrong? There are moral boundaries around sexuality that we didn't pick, and no person should ever cross. But here's the question every single one of us, every single one of us has to wrestle with. So what do you do? What do you do when God, who is the moral authority, when his boundaries around sexuality get in the way of what you want and what you believe you need? What do you do then? I'm going to let you think through that. I'm going to return back to this trap. This trap that they set for Jesus, there is no room for doubt that the woman was guilty of adultery. She was caught in the act. And if Jesus would have said, let's just disregard the Mosaic law, can we just skip over it this one time? Can we pretend that it doesn't say, can we just give her a pass? He would have lost all credibility. I mean, he's supposed to be a teacher. He's supposed to be an expert in God's word and the law. He would have lost credibility. But if he would have said, well, you know what? The law says what it says. We got to execute her. He would have lost the crowd. Who wants to follow a Messiah? Who wants to follow a leader who's going to execute you for every moral mistake you made? I mean, after all, Jesus didn't say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'm going to make you rest in peace. He said, I'm going to give you rest. Not to mention, if he was for her execution, he'd be in trouble with Rome. Rome did not allow the countries that they occupied to execute anyone. Only Rome could do that. And so these guys, these religious leaders, they are high-fiving each other. They think they have got Jesus dead to rights. He is in an impossible situation. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And this is a moment for us to just slow down and make sure we're really taking a good look at the master artist at work. 
All right, these guys are just yapping at them. The anxiety of the crowd is growing thick. The tension is off the charts. And Jesus is totally restrained, almost unaffected. And he just bends down and scribbles in the dirt. And for centuries, Christians have been wondering, what is it that Jesus wrote in the dirt? Do you want to know what it was? I don't know. Nobody knows. I'd love to know, but there's no way to know. It doesn't tell us. But there's something that we do know. And it's the same thing that these religious leaders knew. That the Mosaic law came from God to Moses. If you read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it begins with the Ten Commandments. Moses said, God himself is the one who chiseled these into stones. It was written with the finger of God. And now Jesus bends down finger in the dirt, writing something. And I can't help but wonder, is this Jesus' way of flexing on those dudes? Is this his not-so-subtle way of saying, you don't need to tell me about the law. I'm the God who wrote it. So he doesn't contradict the law. He doesn't pretend that this woman didn't violate the law. What he did was he helped everybody get real honest in a hurry about what it took to be eligible to condemn her. He said, go first. Whichever one of you doesn't have any sin, you throw the first rock. I think we'd be mistaken. I think we'd be mistaken to understand this as Jesus saying, unless you are morally perfect, you can never confront somebody about their wrongdoing. I don't think that's what Jesus taught. I mean, if that was the case, you would have religious grounds to get out of jury duty every time you're summoned. I got bad news. If you're a Christian, you still got to go to jury duty. Jesus was creating an aha moment. However guilty this woman may be, you're just as guilty. And if you're going to condemn her, that means you also have to condemn yourself. And so now these guys are caught in their own trap. Again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who began, uh, those began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. I think the older ones went first because older guys tend to be a little bit wiser. Until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. What was it that these older guys realized that it took the young bucks a few extra minutes to figure out? I think they learned a lesson that it's a painful lesson to learn in front of other people. And the lesson was they were not morally superior. They wanted to be. They wanted other people to think that they were. But they weren't. And so they walked away. I think there are a couple of observations that we should make right here from this passage. Number one, there are superior morals, not morally superior people. There are superior morals, but there aren't morally superior people. And when we forget this, when we forget this truth, it becomes so easy for us to give ourselves an excuse, to give ourselves a pass on being gentle with other people, especially when we think we're morally better than them. Now, there are superior morals, and the only moral statements that count are the ones that are actually true. But there are no morally superior people. We are all the same at the foot of the cross. And there will be times where we have to honestly engage and confront someone about their wrongdoing. But when we remember this, we will always do so with this kind of disposition. I'll never be more disappointed in you than I am in myself. 
I'll never be more disappointed in you than I am in myself. And so gentleness does not mean that there is no confrontation. So let's talk about gospel confrontation. Gospel confrontation is engaging someone honestly about their wrongdoing or how we think they might be in the wrong from a perspective of knowing the gospel, understanding the implications of the gospel, and motivated by the gospel. And it will look like this. Gospel confrontation appeals to someone's dignity and never assaults it. It appeals to people's dignity. It doesn't assault it. Now, those of you who know your Bible, you might say, hey, Rick, what about that time that Jesus called King Herod a fox? Or he said to the Pharisees, you're like, you're like, you're just like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Jesus did say that. And Jesus might have permission to do things I don't have permission to do. But I don't think Jesus ever actually violated this. And as I read about how followers of Jesus throughout the New Testament, whenever they had to honestly engage someone else about wrongdoing, it always looks like this. So let's think about it for a second. Jesus could have destroyed those dudes. Jesus could have, I mean, just condemned them and humiliated them for their grotesque hypocrisy. But he didn't do it. They came to him as teachers of the law, so he just responded to them with the law. There are times in life we have to shine a spotlight on wrongdoing. We have to stand up and we have to say, that is wrong. That should not be. That's evil. There are times we have to do that. There are times it's good and totally appropriate. It's always more preferable. It's always preferable for that light to come on for someone than for the spotlight of exposure to be forced on someone. Don't you want that for you? I know I want that for me. What Jesus did is he flipped the moment and he created the kind of moment where these guys could become self-aware of their own moral guilt. And when that happened, they dropped their rocks and they walked away. Sadly, they walked away from Jesus. And it's so easy to read this account and to think it's a story of Jesus being gentle with the woman, and he was, but as I read it, I see Jesus being incomprehensibly gentle with everyone involved. The problem is, is the woman seems to be the only one who is willing to receive it. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus' refusal to condemn her is not a commentary on the insignificance of sexual sin. Jesus' refusal to condemn her is a commentary on the significance and the extravagance of his forgiveness and his grace. I mean, would you write this down? Jesus would rather be condemned than condemn. When Jesus, when Jesus opted out of condemning her, it wasn't because her sin didn't come with cost and consequences. All sin does, yours does, and mine does too. Jesus would rather, he chose not to condemn because he would rather pay for that with his own body on the cross. That is the gentleness of Jesus. How do you respond to that? Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin. In the same way that Jesus responded to those guys with dignity, he responds to her with dignity. He responds to her as though she's a human being who's fully responsible. He doesn't treat her like a helpless victim. Now, 
Point of fact, she was a victim of these abusive men, but Jesus didn't treat her like a helpless victim. He treated her like a full human being, a woman with agency. And his response is essentially this. You made choices too. And your choices come with moral guilt. So turn away from that and leave that behind you. And there's a word that's used over and over and over again throughout God's word that summarizes what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, repent. How are we going to respond to Jesus today? How are you going to respond to Jesus today? I'm curious if there are any of us here right now or we're thinking right now, you know what, I need to repent. Now, perhaps you're thinking about something, maybe something that you thought was hidden, something that you've been trying to manage and handle on your own, and it feels like this thing is just on the front of your mind, it's on your heart, you're aware of it, and you're like, this is something I need to turn my back on, I need to walk away from it. It could be the Spirit of God right now bringing that to your attention, wooing you, inviting you to repent and turn and follow the way of Jesus. And it's in moments where we have like that, we get to decide, are we going to soften ourselves? Are we going to stiffen our necks? Are we going to soften ourselves to him? Are we going to stiffen our necks and say, no, I'm going to do what I want to do? I don't know the future. I'm not a prophet. But I will make a prediction. For any of us, all of us, in moments where God is wooing us to repent and we stiffen our necks instead of soften, that there's going to be a moment down the road where we look back and we remember a moment like this. And when we remember it, we will wish that we had accepted the gentle invitation from God to repent. If I'm talking to you, it may be because you are not a follower of Jesus and today is the day to cross the line of faith and to say to Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross and rose again. I'm giving my life to you. If I'm talking to you, it may be because you're a longtime follower of Jesus. And there's something you're stuck in and you've been trying to manage it and you've been trying to control it. And maybe it's a combination of of fear and pride and shame and you're trying to keep everybody at arm's length. Would you trust and follow the Savior who you know loves you? So what happens? What happens if this woman trusts Jesus, follows Jesus, and moves forward? What does that look like? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for me if we turn our back on a life of sin and say, Jesus, we are following you? Well, it looks like a lot of different things, but one thing that it's always going to look like, it's going to look like gentleness, gentleness in you and gentleness in me over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, followers of Jesus are called to gentleness. The Apostle Paul wrote about it numerous times. We're going to look at two. In Ephesians, he said this, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You've been given this life in Jesus that you didn't earn. Now, live in alignment with it. Live in harmony with what Jesus has given you. Be kind of humble and gentle. Is that what it says? What does it say? Be, that was weak. It says what? Be, there you go. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, 
Just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Did you notice how many times the Apostle Paul just hammers away at unity and oneness? Of course, we are going to be gentle with each other because our unity and our oneness is so important. Let's keep going. Another time he wrote to a church in Colossae, a group of Jesus followers, much like you and me. He said, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Wrap yourselves up in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Gentleness is a distinct thing, but biblically, you can never disentangle it from compassion, humility, kindness, and patience. Gentleness always shows up with friends. Its friends are compassion, humility, kindness, and patience. But since this is a distinct thing, it would be, it'd be, it'd be kind of a sad thing if we spent all this time talking about gentleness and never defined it. Biblically speaking, gentleness is an inner disposition that's expressed in two directions. Vertically, it's me to God. Horizontally, it's me to others. Gentleness, me to God, is this. Not holding back any of myself. Being soft towards him so that I can be maximally yielded to Jesus. I want to be yielded to Jesus' leadership to the max. And this is where we see you can't disconnect gentleness from humility because it requires humility to say, you know what? Even though sometimes I want to be, I'm not the boss. I'm not the leader. I'm not the moral authority. Jesus, it's you. And I happily place myself underneath your authority. What about gentleness, me to others? Well, it is holding back. It's holding back my strength so that I could be maximally tender with others. So I can give other people the maximum amount of tenderness they need. So let me ask, does being gentle take more strength or less strength? It takes more, right? Monday night, my family had to run some errands up in the city, and it was one of those times where we didn't get to eat till like 8.30 at night, and we were all tired and hungry, and I was hangry, and I'm doing my best at the counter of this fast food restaurant to basically be a Christian. And, and I'm giving my order and my wife places her hand on my shoulder and says, you're not allowed to talk to anybody until after you've eaten. <laughs> and I wasn't rude, but I was like super matter of fact. Not very gentle. Gentleness takes strength. But it also takes some wisdom too. Because the amount of tenderness that this person needs might be different than the amount of tenderness that person needs. And today I need X amount of tenderness. Tomorrow I, I might need more. I mean, this, we've got to think about this. We're not going to get it right on accident. We've got to lean in. It's art. And I, you guys are super smart, and I know you get it, but how do we get it to where we really get it? Like it's down in our DNA, down in our bones. So I found this video online of a dad playing with his son and daughter, and I thought, that's it. I mean, this is a great example of gentleness. Can I show it to you? Check this out. Mama got a little afraid, didn't she? What a great dad. What an awesome dad. Now, that dad held back his strength for both his son and his daughter, but he did it differently, didn't he? He deployed his strength differently so that 
He could give his daughter the tenderness she needed, and he could give his son the tenderness he needed. In every relationship, in every scenario, in every situation, we get to join Jesus in being gentle. How many people that you know could use some gentleness? If I were to ask the people in my orbit, do you want more gentleness or less gentleness from me? What do you think they'd say? Probably more. If you were to ask the people in your orbit, do you want more gentleness or less gentleness, what do you think they'd say? Probably more. Can I ask a hard question? I'm going to do it anyway. I'll go first. What are the things that I use to talk me out of being gentle? I got them. What do I look to to talk me out of being gentle with people? What talks you out of being gentle with people? I'm suggesting let's just follow Jesus and refuse to let anything else talk us out of joining him in the art of gentleness. Over the past year, I think you've heard me say a bunch. I look forward to when I hear you guys say it. Leadership is a destination of discipleship. Following Jesus. If you follow Jesus, he will always lead you to being a leader. And that means taking advantage of opportunities. That means leveraging the influence you have to serve the best interests of other people. We need Christ-like, gentle leaders. We need Christ-like, gentle leaders in the home. We need Christ-like, gentle leaders in community spaces. We need Christ-like, gentle leaders in government. We need Christ-like, gentle leaders in schools. We need Christ-like, gentle leaders in the marketplace. We need Christ-like, gentle leaders in healthcare. And we need Christ-like, gentle pastors. It's awesome that none of you guys said, hey, man, tell me about it. <laughs> Did you know that in this country, this country, every year we shut down and permanently close down more churches than we start? And what that means is our population continues to go like this, increasing the number of churches that we have continue to decrease. And part of that is because we need more pastors. I'm curious. I wonder if God is calling any of you to be pastors. I wonder if God might be calling some of your kids to be pastors. I don't know. I do know this. I know we need Christ-like, gentle leaders everywhere in the church. And I know Jesus is calling this church, this congregation, He's calling you and he's calling me to join him in leading the way in gentleness. Let's be people who embrace all that it means to be good works of art and who live out the art of good works.